My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome everybody. We've got a special bonus episode for you today of the Foxfire podcast. We're your hosts, Cami Ahrens. And I'm TJ Smith. And you're listening to It Still Lives. We are featuring five special folk tales today in honor of TJ's upcoming new book. You want to talk about your book, TJ? Yeah, so this is Foxfire Story, Oral Traditions in Southern Appalachia. It's an overview of... Um, the oral tradition or the or verbal art in this region. Uh, we have a very rich storytelling uh, tradition here in Southern Appalachia, uh, um, a storytelling tradition that continues today, although um, nowadays it's a little bit more formalized, uh, but there was a time leading up to and, and prior to our, our you know more technological forms of entertainment like radio and television and that sort of thing where you know gather out, gathering around the hearth or a campfire or just you know uh, mingling with family uh, storytelling was really one of the the primary ways in which they passed the time and so we have this really amazing storytelling tradition here and fortunately, at the time of, the, of when Foxfire got started, the students were able to interact with and engage with a number of really fantastic storytellers. And so we have this wonderful collection in our archive, and we wanted to feature that uh, tradition and, and sort of put it all together in one, in one collection uh, with a, a focus on, on uh, publishing material that had previously not been in a Foxfire book, although there's some that have appeared in, in previous publications. Uh, for the most part, these stories come from the magazines and uh, from the archives, so some material that has never been published before. Yeah, and I just have to jump in and say I think it's incredibly fitting right now because we all find ourselves quarantined yes. and together and essentially storytelling. I feel like every time I jump on the phone with somebody, yes, it ends up being a sharing of experiences or sharing of stories and anecdotes. And so I think it's appropriate right now for this book to be coming out for us to be able to look back and see how creative people were and how they, you know, used their time to share stories. And I also feel like where we're recording today is pretty perfect. <laughs> yeah, we're outside on the, on the Foxfire front porch. And TJ's sitting in his rocking chair, <laughs> moving back and forth while he's talking about his book. So it, it feels very, very, you know, fitting right now. It is. This is be, apropos for sure. <laughs> to and be discussing Foxfire's story. So we've, like I said, we've got five really great tales um, that we took from TJ's book. Some of them I, I think have been, like you said, published before. One of them we actually play as a recording here at the museum, but as far as I'm aware, had never been published in a book before. Yeah, this correct? is, which is strange because this appeared in the first magazine, um, but it had never made it into a book. And it's a really wonderful anecdote. And I don't want to get too far into the rabbit hole here, but I want to just talk a minute about, you know, storytelling is a very human impulse. The narrative impulse is something that's very uh, deep within all of us. We all tell stories all the time. As Cami noted, you know, in this time of quarantine, um, there's a lot of storytelling and exchanging of stories going on. 
you know, just sharing the details of our day with loved ones that we don't get to see face to face any longer. So it's, you know, storytelling is an important means of sharing and communicating and having this, this sort of shared experience, this shared human experience. It's also, you know, the cornerstone of why we're doing the COVID-19 Oral History Project right now, collecting stories from people as they are living through this amazing uh, event in history while the memories are fresh and while they're sort of constructing their quarantine narrative. It's something that we're, we're seeing a lot in a lot of different media. Uh, you know, I want to applaud other organizations and groups that are out there doing this work. Of course, NPR has been doing a lot with COVID-19 stories, but a number of universities and nonprofits and folk life organizations have been really focused on capturing these stories as they happen. And, and that just goes to show, you know, we still, we still like to share stories. We still like to tell our story. I think most of us are familiar with storytelling in the context of like, you know, a, a family gathering like Thanksgiving or Easter, Christmas, where we get together with extended family and we always tell the same stories over and over and over again. And, and storytelling really is a, a means of reminding us of our familial relationships and our memberships and folk groups that, you know, we are a part of this, this group or that group and helps us to recognize those connections uh, when we have uh, shared stories or a shared collection of stories that we've always heard or always will hear about, you know, a family member or a particular event. So storytelling really is still very much a part of the human experience. And I think that's a big reason why this book is important and, and why we wanted to do it. In this collection of stories, we have some great examples of a couple of different genres. Um, we're gonna start out with a sort of an analysis of legend. Uh, this is uh, May Justice giving us a perspective on Foxfire as a, a natural phenomenon. Uh, of course, the students named the magazine Foxfire after the, the bioluminescent fungus that grows on the rotted wood here in the mountains. But Foxfire can also be a term uh, that references a, an illuminating gas that comes <laughs> comes yeah, from like a swamp gas. Yeah, almost. like a swamp gas. And in in May's recollection of Foxfire, she's getting at, you know, why there are so many great ghost stories and haunting stories here and witch stories and stuff in Southern Appalachia. And she attributes it to these natural phenomenon mm -hmm. that create, you know, glow a glowing presence in the woods or Yeah, or, and that's something we touched on with Ethel Corn's yes, stories, right? Yes. Back in October. So if you reference yep. back to our Halloween bonus episodes from October 2019. Um, Ethel Korn also talks about some natural phenomenons and we discuss a little more in depth, but it's yeah. pretty interesting. And like graveyard gas, yeah, right? And absolutely. that's the other thing, you know, you see these glowing uh, orbs of yeah. gas in the graveyard and of well, course... May Justice actually yeah. talks about soldiers like yes dead soldiers bodies, yes yes which is kind of morbid but so um, so this is you know this is kind of a uh this falls under that category of legend or local legend while at the same time too it's a little bit more of a of a scientific analysis yeah it's pretty interesting i, I also find it interesting that this image of something glowing has such a, like a powerful impact on yes. us i mean we use that imagery all the time we still glow we're still glowing right and so it's i don't know it's kind of cool to to think about that and how that comes from natural phenomenons, but has such a metaphorical meaning in our life. Well, too, you know, we're so used to ambient light at night mm -hmm. in, in modernity. Uh, there's street lights, there's, you know, lights from buildings and all of this. But at the time when many of these people were living, they existed in a very dark yeah. time. 
uh, at night. You know, it really was dark and there weren't all these artificial lights. So to see something glowing in the woods was striking. Oh yeah, and, absolutely. And got your attention. <laughs> and yeah, it makes me wonder, like we really don't know that true separation between light and darkness. No. Because even if we were somewhere where there was no light, no ambient light, like you said, we could still like whip out our phone yep. and turn on a flashlight. Yep. I and mean, we just really don't know what it's like to be in true darkness. No, not so. at all. And so you can imagine how people's imaginations would run wild. Absolutely. Spotting something like a uh, foxfire glowing in the hills. Yeah. So yeah. here's May Justice. <laughs> Oh, So on to more stories about things glowing. I really enjoyed this tale from <laughs> Pat Cotter about how the jack-o'-lantern got its name. And this is a, a really great example of what we call a folk tale. And unfortunately, um, at the time the students were beginning this project, storytellers who were telling these kinds of traditional folk tales, the tradition was dying out a bit. Of course, we have some wonderful tales from Stanley Hicks that were referenced in the very first episodes of It Still Lives. Uh, of course, he had the great hoop snake tale. 
uh, and then uh, the tales of Jack and the Giants. The Jack tales were a very popular motif here in Southern Appalachia, but we did not see just the, the enormity of how big folk tales were in the years previous uh, you know, to the mid 20th century. Uh, time periods where uh, our contacts had been you know, born and they were, they were raised in a very rich uh, folktale environment. We did not have that by the time the students first started, but we do have a few glowing examples. Yeah. <laughs> Just stick with the glowing theme. Uh, and, and this story um, from Pat Cotter on the origins of the jack-o'-lantern is really a, a great, great example. Yeah, and another thing that really stood out to me about Pat Cotter's whole interview is this story that he shares is a performative tale. Yes. So he's sharing the story while he's doing, I think, some sort of woodworking project or something at the Museum of Appalachia. Right. And it becomes this performance in order to share this tale and his craft and his heritage with visitors to the museum. But, you know, I, like you, you were saying earlier, storytelling was a form of entertainment, and there are many storytellers that we have that... You, you can hear, you can tell how many times they've told the story. Right, well, and two, there's, you know, there's there's other underlying, and I referenced this in, in the introduction of the book, folklorist named William Bascom sort of laid out these, these four primary functions of folklore, and he was speaking specifically about oral tradition, and he talks about, you know, the surface layer, there, it is this entertainment, you know, this form of entertainment, but then you start getting into these deeper rooted uh, motivations behind the narrative impulse. And one of those is as a means of validating one's, one's space or one's, one's place in a folk group. Also educating the listeners in the community. And obviously, oftentimes your listeners are part of your community, but it's educating those community members about sort of, you know, the unspoken rules of the community and expectations for behavior and that sort of thing. And then the final, more sinister, we talked about this too in the Murder Ballad podcast, is to control and, and you know, establishing some level of, again, societal expectations of behavior and, and how people are supposed to act in, in, within that community. A lot of times folk tales are done in conjunction with an activity illustrating a point or illustrating a philosophy or illustrating a worldview through a story. So this is this is just a, another, a, you know, a great example of that and, and one that we're fortunate to have in, in the archive. So this is, um, again, Pat Cotter talking about the origins of the jack-o'-lantern. Okay, jack tales are, are tales that, that Appalachian people use when they couldn't explain something to their kids, they'd tell them a jack tale. And it was more of an entertaining process and there, there was some truth to it, most of it was half truth. But it either put the kids to sleep or get them off the back for a while. Okay, so uh, the jack tales, this is a jack tale that my grandfather told me how Jack Lantern got his name. But there was an old Irish farmer who lived pretty close to him and, and uh, he was very, very mean. He didn't, he didn't go to church on Sunday. He didn't uh, uh, go to PTA meetings. He was just, uh, he didn't pay his paper boy. He, he was just all in all a bad character. Uh, but he did have one attribute attribute that that made him famous in the, in the East Tennessee. He grew the best apples in the state of Tennessee. On his farm there, he had apple trees, and he grew the best, biggest, and sweetest apples in the state. The governor would come in and get his apples, and it was just, they were great. And uh, the devil heard about Jack's apples. And it don't happen so often now. The devil used to drop in and see people every now and then. Okay. 
And so the devil dropped in by Jack's house one day and said, Jack, I hear you got the best apples in the state. And he said, I have. I've probably got the best apples in, in the eastern United States. And he said, and the devil said, well, I can have some of them. And Jack said, well, said, what you'll have to do is you have to go to the very back part of my farm on the highest hill, you'll, you'll recognize it, on the tallest tree, on the very top limb. That's where you'll find the sweetest apples. So uh, the devil said, I, I think I'll go get some of them. So he left and started to the apple tree. And Jack followed him with a hatchet. And the devil plumb, that's one of those terms that we use, even though I'm in education, he plumb up the tree, and the devil was on the top limb, sat down, and, and sure enough, he picked apples, and it was the sweetest, best apple he'd ever eaten. And uh, while he was up there partaking of the apples, Jack took his hatchet, and he carved a cross on the bottom of the apple tree. And I don't know if you know about devils and crosses or not, but the devil couldn't get by the cross because he was on the tree trunk, so he was stuck up there for something like 43 years. He couldn't get out. And he was up there, and of course he was mad all this time. Well, Jack eventually died of meanness and old age, and, and he, his first stop was heaven. And St. Peter said, you've been so mean and, and bad, you can't stay here. He said, you'll have to go to hell. And... Uh, of course, when, when Jack died, the spell was released, so the devil came out of the tree, and he, he walked back, was walking back to hell, and he was mad and thirsty. He'd been up there for a long time, you know, with nothing to drink. And he and the devil got to hell, uh, he and Jack got to hell about the same time, and they fit. That's one of those words that we use. They had such an awful fight. The devil was mad, and he was, he was ripped, and, and uh, Jack was ripped because he'd got kicked out of heaven, and the devil said, you can't stay here in hell, and Jack said, I've got to. I hadn't got any other place to go. And the devil said, no, you can't. They fought some more. And, and, and the devil got the best of Jack. And uh, I tell the guys that the devil gets the best of a lot of us from time to time, you know. And I kind of turn this into a religious service. No, not really. But uh, the devil and Jack, the devil started to get the best of Jack. And Jack took off running. And uh, he lit out running. I, I use some of this terminology. And when he did, the devil picked up a hot coal. He hadn't had his nut. And he picked up a hot coal out of hell. And he... He flung, flung it at Jack, and it come bouncing along, you know, and Jack saw it, and he said, you know, I've been condemned to, to wander through eternity in darkness now. I can't go to heaven. I can't go to hell. I might be able to use that coal. And he started to reach down and pick it up to use it for a light, and he realized it was hot. So he looked over in a field. Sure enough, there was a pumpkin, and he took his pocket knife, and he hollered out to Jack around the pumpkin, and he cut a hole in it, and he put the hot coal in there, and... Halloween night, and you still see him going up through Union County and some of the other places with his life. And uh, that's how my grandfather told me that the Jack O'Lantern got its name. Now switching gears a little bit, <laughs> I think this one, I was laughing hysterically. This comes from um, Granny Lyndall Toothman, who will actually be featured in the uh, Foxfire book of Appalachian women, and she is... And she's something else. Yes. She's a pretty incredible woman. Yes. Um, but we'll, we'll save her story for another time. But we wanted to incorporate this story that she shared with Foxfire students about a cat that got stuck in a wood stove. Yeah. And this, you know, humor is, you know, we always say laughter is the best medicine. But certainly, you know, when you talk about the entertainment value and sort of the hierarchy of entertainments, uh, oral tradition, songs. This goes back or relates also to things like vaudeville and that sort of thing where you have these absurd situations and, and they become these really great, almost joke. It's still under the auspices of a folk tale 
although this one is a little bit more anecdotal. But it, you know, these motifs we see again and again in folk tales and in jocular tales. You know, cats are, are funny creatures anyway. They're mysterious, they're curious. I have five of them, I know all about it. There's always a, this really great punchline at the end of these kinds of tales. And, and we're gonna hear one from, uh, of course, Granny Toothman, and then after her, Will Siegel's story. Of, of a robbery and a prank played on him after he's had this, he's almost been robbed. But you know, people have this, you know, really great senses of humor. Sometimes it's self-deprecating and sometimes it's, you know, there's an object of the humor. So in, in, in Grant Toothman's case, we're talking about, you know, the hilarity of a cat in a stove. I'll tell you a, a little story about that oven, uh, cold, fall day and kind of nippy outside and mother left uh, both oven doors open so the heat had come out and we had a big old cat there and cat curled up in the oven went to sleep mother got ready to get dinner while she shut both doors and built her fire <laughs> and we heard this cat a screaming and we was running around the house, but we couldn't hear it when we got out around the house. And uh, we'd come back in, and we could hear that cat screaming. And all of a sudden, Mother thought, well, it must be in the stove. She opened the stove door, and out run that cat. Its paws were scorched and his hair was singed just a little bit, but the cat really wasn't hurt. But it sure never went back in that stove again. <laughs> that was Granny Toothman, and that's just a wonderful folktale. And, and then as I referenced earlier, we're next gonna hear from Will Siegel. And this is a, a, a story of outlaws on the road attempting to rob him and then after that experience being pranked. That's also reminiscent though of some, some familial folk tales like Br'er Rabbit and the Tar Baby. I yeah. mean, you've got some, <laughs> some elements of the Tar Baby tale in this story, um, which is, I find interesting. And again, we see motifs repeat in a lot of these different folk tales from different, different cultural groups. Of course, the Br'er Rabbit and, and, and those stories come from the African-American tradition. They were popularized by the Uncle Remus tales, but they do belong to the African-American community. And, and those stories of things being dressed up uh, to appear as humans, and again, playing with light, because it's at night, it's mm -hmm. hard to tell if, if something's real or not. And uh, so you've got this, this you know, sort of hilarity that comes from that, but it's interesting to see those crossovers between tales. It's why we see uh, retellings of things like Cinderella and, and these very much popularized folk tales that have been popularized by larger media. But these traditions go way back and they have their forms in all these different cultures and they pop up almost simultaneously throughout the world but then they also speak to the way that cultures intermingled and shared stories between themselves. And you get uh, this, this diffusion of motif and, and story and, el and story elements um, that we see you know, repeat throughout the larger world of oral tradition and folk tale. So again, here's Will Siegel with his, uh, his robber tale. And I come out and they said, hands up. I said, I guess not. They said, hands up, <laughs> hands up or die. 
I said, oh, look, and I, I, I see it. It wasn't too dark, but it's in the night, but I went in the creek and got me a rock, and one of them, I just didn't miss his head as he went behind the tree. And <laughs> so the, and he run back out, thought they would get me to run, you know, and they had them old eyes, you see them at the opening, they won't shut the mess of spring. I bought one of them that day, and I happened to have it in my pocket. I grabbed it out, and, and I thought it wasn't going to take my little dab of money they got. I didn't get much, but I was going to keep it. And when one of them come back to me, and he come back to me, I made a diaphragm that way and stuck in his shirt collar here. And I cut that shirt, and, and his bush was wasteful, and green hide from down like his bush was wasteful. He said, I'm cut. He run back, and that ended it up. <laughs> And then after that happened, Priest Bradley, one of the wife's brothers, gave me a fist. I said, you carry it and hide it. And over there, not carry it on the wall. I said, I wouldn't carry it on the works at all. I had this little old tree on the side of the road when I hit over here at the highway, and I put it in the stump. And uh, so I come back that night, and they'd black that thing, and had that coat all over the office-looking thing. I said, now, boys, I hate to shoot anybody, but I said, I'll shoot you just as sure as the dickens. I said, now, I'm going to durr. And I said, well, what, what's up? I hollered two or three times at him. I, took pretty, I walked up a little closer and I said, speak to me. And he wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't speak, he couldn't speak. I, 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 I just got good out and I said, bang, bang. <laughs> it never moved and I walked up to it and kicked it and hit that stump dress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Them a up on the mountain. Yeah. yeah. there's a way up on the mountain behind trees. You know, you never hear no such laughing. Finally, the last story we're going to share with you comes from former sheriff Luther Rickman, and this was, I believe, the first or one of the very first yes. interviews yes. that the Foxfire students conducted all the way back in 1967. And Luther shares an anecdote about a bank robbery that happened here in Raven County yes. when he was sheriff. And it's really great hearing this um, because you get a sense for how many times Luther Rickman has told this story. <laughs> and the way that you get that sense is that you can hear his wife in the background. I think that's my favorite part. Yes. <laughs> Chipping in. He'll, he'll hit a spot where he's not, he hasn't quite remembered what he's supposed to say next and his wife will chime in with the exact words that he's probably said a million times. Uh, the other thing, though, I want to point out with, with, with Luther Rickman is that he's, you know, he's out of law enforcement and he's used to doing sort of recounting situations around crimes or, or around his response to crimes. And his story sounds very much like something out of the blotter. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very much like a police report. He, he starts off with the date, where he was, what he heard, who he interacted with by name. Uh, it's like a retelling in a courtroom. Uh, it's definitely a different style than what we've heard in the previous stories. Yes. And it's, I don't want to say like almost more realistic, but you're, you're right. The, the factual information that he begins with definitely makes it feel more like it's well, a retelling the, in a courtroom. Like yes, you said, or, and the details are yeah. like that too. Um, you definitely get the sense that this man is in law enforcement. One key issue though here is that you know, I, I don't know how old Luther Rickman was when he first, when he, when he gave the story to the students. I know he was way up in years, but he gets the dates wrong. The students actually had to go back in a later issue, I think in the 1980s is when they did this. And they identified that he, you know, the month was correct. It was August. 
Uh, the date was a few days off, but it was two years off. Mm -hmm. uh, Luther Rickman identifies the year as 1936. The Clayton Bake robbery happened in 1934. Um, and the students went and did some digging at the, the morgue at the newspaper and uh, identified and found where, you know, the correct information and, and republished another retelling. And in the book itself, in the Foxfire book, I do provide a second telling of this story right next to uh, Luther Rickman's from a young man who was witness to it and who got dragged along when they went up to North Carolina to identify the bank robbers. <laughs> uh, he got you know, grabbed up and placed in the car. You're coming with me. We're going to go see if these are the guys you saw. So his retelling is, is a lot different, and uh, so they're side by side, but in, in the book you'll get to see that. So yeah, here's Luther Rickman. Um, I hope you really enjoy this one because his telling is wonderful, and again, listen for his wife in the background <laughs> uh, filling in the gaps uh, to help him keep the story going. On August the 26th, 1936, I was getting a haircut in Myers Barbershop. Heard a gunfire. When I heard the gunfire, it was in a southerly direction. I ran out the door, and as I hit the sidewalk, uh, Sanford Dixon Howard said, Sheriff Rickman, run to the bank. The bank's being robbed. They have, they have just gone out in a black car. When that happened, I ran into the front of the bank, and Mr. T.A. Duckett was coming in at the back of the bank. And Miss Drew Willa Blakely was the, was the only person in the bank when the robbers came in. They, when they called for the money, she screamed and ran out at the back of the bank and into the back of Dover and Green's drugstore and screamed to Dr. Dover that this bank was being robbed. Dr. Dover walked out at the front door and as he hit the sidewalk, one of the robbers with a small machine gun said, big boy, get back in there and shot down at near his feet. Dr. Dover said he felt of himself to see if he had shot. From that, Fred Derrick ran into the bank. Oh, I'm telling this what happened. Ran into the bank and said to me, Sheriff Rickman, we'll get some guns and ammunition. And ran to Reeves and began to jerk down guns. And 
ammunition. And from that, I deputized two men and jumped in a little old Ford and started south in the direction the robbers had went and a man hollered at me said, Sheriff Rickman nails in the road. And I took the wrong side of the road and dodged the nails and when I did the nails lasted from Clayton to Tiger, Georgia. A little below Tiger. I went from there to Cornelia, Georgia. And when I got in Cornelia, I got a message that this car had turned on the Eastman Road. I came back and traced that car from the Eastman Road across to the War Woman Road. Went east to Pine Mountain. Turned north and went to Highlands. And from there over into Transylvania, North Carolina, into a logging camp where these robbers had a hideout. And from there, the robbers stayed, spent the night and Next night, had a wreck in Old Fort, North Carolina, and wrecked their car, and held a man up from Charlotte, North Carolina, and took his car, and ran his car a few miles, and the car broke down, and I found it on an old mountain road. From that, I went from there to Spruce Pine, North Carolina, and got some information. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this little sampler of stories from our upcoming book, Foxfire Story, which is going to be released April 28th, so I believe next Tuesday. Yes. Um, so you can still pre-order your copy or order a copy once it's released. This is, like I said, just a very, very small sampler of yes. what's in that book. There are so many amazing stories, and we wanted to share more with you, but we ran out of time, and also there were some issues with the audio of some of them. Yes. So um, <laughs> definitely, definitely pick up a copy of that book and just kind of take a deep dive into some yes. of these really great folk tales from Appalachia. I also hope that this podcast gave you all a sense of what a story can look like and that it doesn't always have to be some formalized tale of the extravagant or supernatural, but 
really that our everyday experiences can become stories, can become folk tales that shape our culture and mold our future. So with that said, I really encourage all of you who are in the Appalachian region, if you haven't already, to consider recording your experiences during this time of uncertainty and quarantine and sharing those with us for our own archives so that for the future they can they can capture the history that's happening now. If you don't live in Appalachia, definitely start doing some research. There are a bunch of organizations, like TJ mentioned, that are out there collecting different aspects of what's happening around us right now. Oral history is incredibly valuable, and your voice truly does matter at this time. Absolutely, and uh, you know, I encourage you to go to our go to our website to www.foxfire.org/journal. Uh, you can find um, a lot of great information there right now, but certainly there's an article specifically about the COVID-19 Oral History Project and even a video, I believe, where you and I talk about the yeah. process <laughs> and, and how to go about doing it. It's not, you know, it may sound a little daunting, but it's really not. It's easy to do. And it's a, and it's something to do with, you know, either by yourself. Uh, it's very um, cathartic to sort of get that out there. But then certainly too, if you're if you're quarantining with with uh, roommates or friends or family, it's a great opportunity to share with each other sort of your experiences and talk about them and and make a record of of this this really unique time in our history. Yes, and a huge thank you to everyone who's already contributed. We really appreciate your um, submissions to our project, and we've really enjoyed hearing everybody's experiences. Uh, We will be back in two weeks with a full-length podcast for the month of May, and I'm pretty excited about this one. I'm working on it this morning. It's (laughs) going to be on moonshining, so definitely not one you're going to want to miss. So we'll have that available for you the very first Tuesday of May. And as always, feel free to reach out to us. You can email us at itstilllives at foxfire.org. Reach out to us on Twitter. It still lives the number one. Or follow us on social media, Facebook or Instagram. We're both platforms. We are foxfire.org. And until next time, please stay safe out there and continue your social distancing and and just being kind to one another. Thanks, and we'll see you all next time. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>